What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks so much for tuning in today and checking us out. We got a great one for you today. I'm really excited to bring you this guest because... He's really, he's utilizing business for, for a purpose, right? But to not just the purpose of profitability, which we, especially today, we just, we just associate capitalism and for-profit entities with exactly that profit. And what our guest is doing is he basically, he launched a business that he believes can both be profitable it can operate and really excel in the capitalistic society and also change the world for the positive. And you can truly hear in his voice and see in his background and his life that this isn't just a story, right? He's not just trying to create a nice message that we will carry on and, and we'll go use this, this business, this service. It's something he's dedicated his life to. So this week, we are interviewing Adam Werbach, and Adam is an environmental activist, an author, and an entrepreneur. In 1996, he became the youngest person ever elected as the national president of the Sierra Club. He was 23 years old. He's the author of books, Act Now, Apologize Later, and Strategy for Sustainability, A Business Manifesto. And just a few years ago, Adam launched his latest venture, which is Yertle. That's Yertle, Y-E-R-D-L-E. We're going to talk a lot about what Yertle is, so I don't need to go into it too much, but essentially it's a way to buy and sell used goods without money ever changing hands. And the idea is 
let's just consume less new stuff. I mean, when you think about it, we are a country of just waste. If it's not brand new, it's not good enough for us, right? That's the, that's the American motto. And look, I'm not saying I don't ever think that way or feel that way, but that's why this episode really opened my eyes. And it's also why I love what Yertle's doing, and I was happy to have Adam on the show. So we're going to spend the first part of the episode just learning about his background, which is really fascinating. As I mentioned, you know, youngest president of the Sierra Club ever. He really had a passion for sustainability and cleaning up the environment and activism since he was 13 and he began donating to Greenpeace. So it's a fantastic story. We we talk about kind of the background and the methodology and the mindset in the beginning of the episode and then how that transitioned into a company that is changing the way we do business, changing the way we buy things. So I'm going to turn it over here to Adam in a moment. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Don't forget, we are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, or if you just go to our website, there's a big subscribe button up there. Sign up for the newsletter. That's where we send out special articles, quotes, recommendations, things like that. Really just being part of the community. A lot of good stuff over there. You can connect with us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, here it is, your interview with the founder of Yertle. Adam Warbach. Well, Adam, thanks so much for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you today and learn about uh, your your company, Yertle, as well as a little bit more about your background. So thanks so much. That's good to be with you. So the first thing I want to kind of jump into is as I was doing my research and, and realized that you are the youngest president ever of the Sierra Club, which in and of itself is a really interesting factor that I want to talk about. But first and foremost, have you always been passionate about sustainability? And if so, what aspect? Well, I I think I have been bitten by um, the bug from a very early age. And that, that bug is that I have a belief that I can do something about the world. Um, and it's, it, it seems pretty simple, but that, that belief in self-efficacy that, that even though I'm, you know, have been, um, a young activist, um, I can actually make a difference that, that single notion has propelled me a long way. And it, it really all came back from, um, when I was a, just a kid, I, um, I found this petition to oust James Watt. He was the secretary of the interior under Ronald Reagan. Uh, on my parents' table. And on that particular day, we were learning how to sign our name. This was like second grade. So I brought the petition in as my kind of show and tell for how to sign your name. And everyone signed their name. And my teachers were really impressed. And um, it was super fun to get all of the sort of the, the support for doing that. And then I went around to the rest of the school and had everyone else sign their name. And pretty soon we had about 200 signatures on that petition. And that petition, along with a million others, um, uh, basically helped get Watt thrown out of office. And that that you know being part of something that big, even though I was so young, struck me as as remarkable. You know, I couldn't vote, I couldn't rent a car, um, I, I couldn't have a bank account, um, but I could make a difference, and that that really bit me. What's interesting about that is, I mean, aside from being able to to do that, is just having the ability and the passion to even carry through on that at a young age. I mean. You know, I think about myself and most normal kids that I know, 
And even if I had the opportunity, I don't know if I would have went down that route. You know, I'm, I was too busy, like trying to figure out what this whole life thing was about and, you know, having crush, having, you know, different crushes on girls <laughs> and playing sports. So what do you attribute this need or want to, you know, benefit society? What do you attribute that to? I suppose my parents and, and I, I think just good old fashioned organizing, you know, the, the, the credo of an organizer is to meet someone where they're at and there could be no, you know, better moment of, you know, a second grader trying to learn how to sign his name and a petition that just needed second graders to sign their names. Um, so it was a brilliant piece of organizing, um, that the Sierra club pulled off at that time. And, you know, I think that sort of struck me since that time, because what I've sort of been searching for ever since then is what, what is a similar Thing. What is a similar thing that will spark people, regardless of their age or their wealth or their political background, into doing something that will actually make a difference on the planet? So I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think I was that remarkable. I think more, more fitting it was that I, I just had the opportunity and I took it. Yeah, I think for me at least, the the thing that strikes me is just the age at which you started. Because I feel like, and I actually read a book about this recently, but how you know, oftentimes people start to realize that. Uh, they they get this passion from believing in things and doing things larger than themselves, but it tends to come later in life after you first figure out a little bit more about yourself. So I think that's kind of one of the most intriguing aspects is the age in which you started, you know? Well, and that's sort of one of, I mean, one of our goals has to be to get kids to believe that they don't need to go through training to be citizens. And there's so many institutions, and I don't mean to, to harp on them, but things like the model of the United Nations, or they're, they're just like uh, getting ready for the world instead of confronting the world. Mm. And right now, we, we need, I mean, kids are, kids have the type of future values baked into them already. They don't have the sort of retrograde values that um, I probably have embedded in me or my <laughs> parents did in them or their parents, which are, you know, we're definitely good, um, hearty values that, that help build a nation. But in terms of surviving in the 21st century, understanding about, you know, the benefits of, of having a diverse set of opinions in the room, understanding that the, the challenges of inequality are, you know, will make our country live or die. And, you know, understanding that climate change is an existential risk um, or an incredible opportunity for us. Those sorts of ideas are, are not obscure or forward. They're just what everyone who's a millennial believes right now. I want to I want to get a little bit more into kind of the Sierra Club, but while while you mentioned this last topic, it just struck me. And if you don't feel like answering it or whatever, uh, you know, let me know. But I was wondering as we look at the political debates, and a if you know what candidate you're going to vote for, and b assuming, and I could be assuming wrong, but you're more of a liberal or a Democrat. How do you deal with the fact that? You know, you are you're you're also a CEO of a of a company, a tech company that we're going to talk about. You're probably going to have to pay more taxes under a Democrat. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm supporting Hillary Clinton. Um, I just think she's about the most qualified person there ever has been to be president, and I'm excited uh, for her to be it. It's incredible that you know we're going to put her through a ringer as we have <laughs> her entire mm-hmm. career um, to get there. Um, and I I certainly have probably a, a huge number of my friends who support uh, Bernie Sanders, who I'd love. I've known for a long time and, mm-hmm. and support his, a lot of his positions. But I just think in terms of who will be the best president, um, I think she'll be it. Um, you know, it, and I, in terms of taxes or those things, I, I, you know, I guess I just believe that taxes are what you pay to be part of society. So I've always been very proud to pay them and 
you know, I think right now that the question of whether we'll be successful in the society my kids will is whether we're actually going to be able to have an equal society. And my taxes and paying them is, a, is my direct contribution to trying to build equality into into our nation. Well, and, you know, that's oftentimes I mean, that is when it comes to taxes, the approach I take. And, and look, you know, I don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but I think the lens in which you look at it through is so interesting, given your position as an entrepreneur and within a company where. I would imagine, you know, you will be or plan to be paying more taxes than the average person and whatnot, and it affects the bottom line. Does that weigh in on your decision at all in your role as a CEO, as opposed to just somebody who perhaps has a job and pays the standard taxes? Um, no, I mean, I think I, I, you know, we we want to pay more taxes. We want to get bigger so that we can. We want to have a bigger effect on on society, and one of the ways we can do it is through tax policy. I mean, one of the challenges that, you know, some, there are some businesses in the sharing economy that have been a bit slow to embrace their tax burdens. And this is really in hoteling like Airbnb and cars like um, Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. And they, they vary a lot um, in terms of how they've responded. But in terms of what we do, which is basically move things back and forth between people, you know, tax, the tax situation in our economic policy is all built around selling more things, you know, the economy is good when we sell more things. And there's something profoundly wrong about that um, because what we should be mapping is productivity, not production. And that change will have a profound effect on how we pay taxes. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm very interested in being a part of that. But I would love that to be an extraordinarily high um, burden on us because it means that we're being successful. I mean, somehow schools are going to have to get paid for. Roads are going to have to get paid for. And you know, companies should be a big part of that. You know, I love that. And this is something that so many people miss, right? They complain about, you know, like, for example, the county I'm in only has a half day kindergarten and it's the it is the richest county in the country. And, you know, people complain about the traffic or potholes, like you said. But in the the same breath, we'll talk about how they don't want to pay taxes or how their tax rates too high. And it, it just blows my mind because I think people never put the two together. Or at least, I don't know. That's just my thoughts on it. Well, there's a belief, there's not a belief in governance. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And it's, you know, it's the internal battle happening within the Republican Party right now that, you know, there's just this belief that the best thing we can do. And, you know, Grover Norquist's famous quote is that I want to make government so small that I can put it into a bathtub and drown it. Um, (laughs) You know, that, that is the, that is the gold standard of conservative Republican anti-tax thinking right now. And it's, you know, it, if you do drive on roads and you do rely on the court system and you do want to travel and have a passport, you're going to need to pay taxes. And, you know, ideally you want a government that works really, really well and spends that money really efficiently. And could we be more efficient? Absolutely. You know, that's, I, I really do support a lot of the kind of technology efforts that have going on recently to, to improve the function of governance. But, you know, you're still arguing some of us want to make government better and some people just want to kill government. Mm. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard to convince them they should be spending taxes. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good way of looking at it. Well, thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me. It was just something that popped <laughs> up. Um, but I want to talk about the Sierra Club a little bit. So uh, tell us a little bit. You were the youngest ever president. So tell us, for those that don't know what the Sierra Club does, how and how you became president of it, and then what that entailed. I know that's a lot, but want to sure. hear about that experience. Well, the, the Sierra Club is the um, oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization. It was founded in 1892 with the help of John Muir. 
Um, and it's been involved in most of the largest um, kind of land preservation and environmental battles since that time. Um, it uh, is also a hiking organization, and it takes hundreds of thousands of people out hiking every year in their local areas. So I got involved basically by helping to start their student program, which is called the Sierra Student Coalition. And in high school, I had sort of continued being active. I became a vegetarian. I was kind of reading up a lot. And I got um, drafted into what was called the Big Green Initiative, which was a big ballot initiative in the state of California to pass new mileage protection or sort of uh, new um, new energy efficiency goals to protect redwood forests and a whole bunch of things for the whole enchilada. And I just walked into the headquarters and said, can I help? And they said, well, you know, do you know any other high school students? I said, sure. I had my friends. So they had me calling other high school kids, which I did all over the state of California. And in those two weeks, we ended up with 300 volunteers and we got crushed. <laughs> it was just like one of those ones which I had, it was just, it wasn't even close. Um, although it was very exciting for us because we were, we were doing something. And, you know, at the day after that, the students just sort of called me up and said, what are we doing next? And I said, I don't know. So I could call all the environmental groups and said, I have 300 high school students who want to do something. What do you want to do with them? And for whatever reason, none of, none of the organizations either called me back or were interested except the Sierra Club who invited me to come to a meeting um, and then basically said, what do you want to do with them? I said, I, I don't know. Maybe we should train them. Hmm. So they gave me a budget of $200 in a lodge they have up in Mount Baldy. And I ran a training with high school students on how to be high school environmental organizers even though I was a high school student myself. And pretty much all those students sort of kept with it. And when we graduated, they all took the idea to their colleges. And within a year, we had 30,000 members across the U.S. working on big pieces of legislation. Um, so that was that's sort of the, the formation. And then the Sierra Club kind of found out about it later because we were working out of a little part of the Los Angeles chapter. And all of a sudden, we were this sort of national organization. So they invited us to San Francisco to shut it down because we were infringing on their trademark. And... Um, one very wise leader, his name was Ed Weyburn, um, pointed out that perhaps we shouldn't be killing the student movement, but in fact supporting it. And um, when, when that happened, it kind of flipped. And I, I became, um, uh, I got, I was actually put on the board of directors and eventually um, was supported by a, a legendary environmentalist named David Brower uh, to become the president uh, after I graduated college. And how old, so you're like 21, something like that? I was 23. So you're 23. Essentially, as the president, you run this national organization uh, with, I don't know, now I think it's got like 2 million members or so. So I don't know how many at the time, but obviously a lot. I imagine that people on your board, people that worked with you, etc., were a lot older than you. Did that ever strike you? Did you ever have any insecurities? Uh, you know, what was that like? I mean, in some parts, it was terrifying. Um, you know, I, it, it was there was it was subtly always embarrassing. Like I remember going to you know kind of presidential campaigns, and I couldn't even you know events, and I couldn't even um, you know during the elections, and I, I couldn't even rent a car. Um, I was just, I was like I wasn't twenty five yet. It seemed ridiculous, and I would go to I would go to events, and like I I, I would be carded, not labeled, to come in. You know, like fundraisers that I was running. So there was there was all sorts of small insults um to young people and you know frequently just you know kind of walked to the intern door as opposed to the the big kids door um but you know ultimately i think actually not knowing a lot about nonprofit management at the time um and not knowing about political realities like this is why these things don't work allowed me to just go you know mm -hmm. and to do the things that i knew how to do so i 
traveled a ton. I went to every every local chapter and and really reached out to young people. I mean, and to give you a sense, like in the in the first few years I was there, we were able to lower the average age of a member of the Sierra Club by a decade. Wow. Um, and that's just because no one had really reached out to young people recently and said, hey, this is your world and we want you as members. Uh, so hmm. I think that's probably the thing I'm most, most proud of actually being able to support. So what is your view towards younger i mean i don't want to say younger people in general i kind of am looking i mean more towards now that you run a company and i'm sure you have you know you have 21 year olds coming in you probably have 30 i don't know 40 do what are your views on say um ambition and passion versus experience uh so i'll start with what i mean i guess i've 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 always believed in the power of young people to achieve extraordinary things. Um, and, you know, I, um, I, I think I, I understand it more as being a spirit as opposed to a particular age, if that makes sense mm-hmm. now. Um, but I remember as a, you know, as a college student, I was incredibly frustrated when, you know, people who were in their 20s considered themselves young people. And as a high school student, I, was, I, was, I hated when college students you know, so that they were the young people. Like I, I just tend to trust whoever's youngest in the room to be able to express what they want and go. You know, there's no reason to stop. Like it, if you don't have the experience, that's just not a good enough reason to not step forward. And the joy of YouTube and Google and you know being able to find anything anytime is that you, you can be as qualified to sit in that room as anyone around the table if you do your homework. So I tend to be pretty impatient um, with you know younger people and just expect them to to play along and to lead and i don't really care that they don't have 15 years of experience i just expect them to i I expect them to lead and if they can't well then you know they've got to move on right right that's interesting now let's take a quick break for a message from our longest standing sponsor and a true supporter of smart people podcast lynda.com as you guys must know by now lynda.com is an amazing online learning platform Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on a variety of topics such as web development, visual design, business, software, you know, how to do Photoshop or WordPress, all the stuff you need to know. And all of their courses are taught by experts. Something here at Smart People Podcast, you know we dig. So whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, or invest in a new hobby, lynda.com has something for everyone. So sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash smart people. When you go there, you'll get unlimited access to every single course on lynda.com. Some of the courses and videos I recommend range from things like getting things done, which is an actual course, and breaking out of a rut, to the more specific courses, like the Excel course, which many of us need to use in our day-to-day life or photography classes. So do something good for yourself this holiday season and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. So go to lynda.com slash smart people and learn something new. Now back to the show. Oh, by the way, I read that you had something to do with uh, the formation of Joshua Tree National Park. One of my favorite places in the world. Yes. Holds such a... 
meaningful place in my heart. I when I read that, I was like, oh, I have to tell him first of all, thank you. Second of all, I want to know how you know how you did that. But because um, my brother lives in L.A. and he's you know he, he's loves camp. We both love camping, and uh, I'll never forget you know when he moved out there. I was maybe. 18 ish or something. He's early twenties. He said, you got to come to this park. And I was like, what is it? He's like, well, it's kind of in the desert, but they have these cool trees. And I'm thinking, I mean, that doesn't sound that (laughs) fun. Like that just sounds weird. And we went and for some reason, just a magical place. So what, what, how did that come about? What'd you do with that? Well, when I I was in my teens, I was feeling pretty isolated. Just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't on the football team and I wasn't, um, I was, I was an environmentalist and I was working, for trying to pass laws and those sorts of things. And I got, I, I met this really remarkable man named Eldon Hughes, who was spending every weekend or every waking moment mapping the desert, the California desert. And he, along with Judy Anderson and Jim Dodson, every weekend we would just go out and just find places that weren't protected and draw them onto maps. He had an old Bronco, orange, orange Bronco. We used to go everywhere. And, and that was just the way I spent my weekends and my evenings and, you know, just going out into the desert. And, you know, what, what, what I learned was that the California desert was remarkably unprotected, that Death Valley, the East Mojave and Joshua tree in particular were being mined, were being developed and were really being destroyed. And no one seemed to care about them. You know, that when I would go and start talking and lobbying on them, you know, everyone who hadn't been there would describe them as sort of the places where we get kitty litter. (laughs) They just couldn't see them as like (laughs) anything majestic. And they sort of saw them as sacrifice zones for military or whatever, just, just not important. Um, so, you know, my job was on mapping. And then when we got to the point of, you know, it's a 10, 12 year battle to actually getting to a political um, battle and trying to get the votes we needed, the Sierra Student Coalition kind of set up to find ways to get senators who were blocking it to change. And, you know, those tactics were things like there was one, one or there's like three senators in the Southeast who were opposing it. And one of our student activists figured out where their kids went to college and, you know, made sure we had organizations in those schools and did these things that we call dorm storms, which is, you know, you basically got some music and some beer and a bunch of fun people and you go into a dorm and get everyone excited about an issue. And we dorm stormed the heck out of those campuses Hmm. and pretty, it was pretty remarkable, but all those votes changed in a period of about six weeks without any, without even direct contact with the, with the daughter, uh, the daughters, they just, people found out because we put pressure on them. So it was just, you know, we were just, we were just solving with whatever we knew how to do. You know, the California desert was important to me and to Stephanie Jowers, this one student who figured out the strategy. She had never been in the California desert, but she had a place she wanted to protect. So if she could help me with this, then I could help her with that. Mm. Well, why should we care about protecting, say, the California desert? As opposed to, I mean, it's easy to be like, we're destroying rainforest. Okay, I get that. But a bunch of sand and some weird looking trees, why worry about it? Well, you have to start with, a, 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 to my mind, of an appreciation of wildness and wilderness. Um, you know, Henry David Thoreau said that in wildness is the preservation of the world. And I, I believe that, that there's something that is natural about us, um, about our humanity, that only really gets enlivened when it's in a wild place. You know, when I was born, about 2% of the planet was left in wilderness, and we're probably closer to 1% right now. And it's being destroyed at an awfully fast clip. And when you destroy nature and natural places, it's like tearing pages out of the Earth's operating manual and just destroying them. 
before we even knew, know what the value is, what, what we can learn from them. Um, so a, a place like the California desert has obviously sort of this sort of Pandora's box of beauty that, that is interesting um, and enlivening. Um, but it also, for me, it's a place where you can just be. Um, there's nothing like being in Slick Rock and Canyon and, um, and looking and seeing nothing human. Um, for what it does to reconnect you and your soul to the planet, um, there's just nothing like it. Personally, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, you know, that's why my restart button is camping. Usually, mm. usually in the woods, um, preferably by some body <laughs> of water as yeah, small as, yeah. you know, but it, it, my thing, I actually, I auditioned for a, a, a TEDx talk about this. I didn't get it, but one day I will, but it was kind of, I think it takes nature to make us realize how small we are and then we can put things into perspective. And I just, I love that. Richard, yeah, there's a, there's a Reddit named Richard Louvre who talks about nature deficit disorder. Um, <laughs> you know, and says that, that, you know, when humans are, are outside and not having that sort of chloroform hit, um, that they really do suffer. And the research pretty much shows, you know, that, that we, we need to have that. Um, and I, for me, it's not, it's, it is, it is definitely being around green, I know that affects my mood and how I feel, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's also about being in wide open spaces. And like you said, to sort of put ourselves in perspective to something much larger than mm-hmm. ourselves. Absolutely. So now you run a company, a tech startup, I believe. And I know a little bit about it, not a ton, um, which I want to hear about. But I want to know why the transition. I mean, say you're running potentially the most powerful uh, nature preserving nonprofit, whatever you want to call it in, in the world and, um, probably have a lot of influence. Why go into business and, and tech for that matter? Well, as I said, it was an incredible privilege to be able to work at the Sierra club. There's an extraordinary professional staff there. There's amazing volunteers everywhere and, and they're still there. I mean, there's, it's, it's there, it's growing, it's stronger than ever. I mean, for example, there's not been a new coal fired power plant in the United States built largely because of the Sierra Club's campaigns to, to keep that coal in the ground and not burning into our lungs and the climate. But um, for me, the, the, the frustration that I've, I've had um, with uh, the environmental movement in general is that, you know, essentially we haven't been working at the pace of climate change. And it's not the Sierra Club per se. I think that they're doing an extraordinary job. It's just as a whole, the political movement has not been fast enough to work at the pace of this existential threat that we face um, with climate change. And, you know, this isn't a new thought. You know, I was part of the Kyoto Accord negotiations um, back in 97. And, you know, we knew it then. You know, we knew everything we know now then. And we knew how much time we had and what was at stake. And the challenge is that there was that unlike the 1970s where there was a, a societal agreement that something is wrong. I mean, in, in you know the early 1970s, late 60s, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio lit on fire and burned for days. It was an American spectacle, and people just knew, wow, we, we just can't do this. We can't have rivers burning and sort of biblical events. We have to pass the Clean Water Act. You know, when the bald eagle, the symbol of America, was on the endangered species, you know, was 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 on the verge of extinction. We knew we needed an endangered species act. You know, it just was something that all Americans could actually rally behind and understand. I mean, Nixon 
President Nixon, a Republican, signed the, those bills into law. Mm. Well, now count 30 years later, 40 years later, and that, that widespread agreement has folded. You know, it doesn't exist. And the work that I've, I've, I've done since the Sierra Club has really been trying to figure out how do we actually reach more people? How do we do it beyond the, the people who are ready to sign up and join the fight? How do we get people to understand that these values are not some fringe thing that are that's good for you know college towns and coastal towns? This is something that all of us need and, and require, and that that's really what sort of led me on this on the journey since then. Do you find that people are more willing to support a cause that's I want to say externally motivated, but I don't know if that's the right word. It's just or phrase what's coming to me. But so the bald eagle, right? Oh my gosh, it's an animal and it's America. We got to fix it, right? Or water. This is a resource that we need to fix. But when you say climate change, I think it's so broad. It doesn't have a a symbol almost. And I don't know. I, I just don't know if people attach the emotional value knowing full well that it could be our destruction. Do you think, do you think it's messaging? Do you think what is the holdup in terms of I mean, there are still people believe that it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, I it, what is it? I mean, it it's a very challenging problem for our political system to solve because it lasts longer than one Congress or one president. It takes, I mean, it's, it's it is trillions of dollars of investment changing over a period of decades. It's cross national and cross border. Uh, it affects everyone, um, and we're all starting at different places. So it's, it's a, it's a really wicked problem, um, which we have to acknowledge. Um, however, it's here, you know, and, and, you know, the fact that it's, that it's uh, challenging, unfortunately can't be an excuse for us to not act on it. Mm-hmm. You know, what we see more and more is that the realities are just here. You know, there's a huge hurricane Patricia heading towards Mexico right now. Yep. You know, we watched, this summer, we watched the Olympic rainforest burn. Rainforests don't burn, you know, but mm-hmm. this burn. It's it, that way. You know, we're in the middle of a reef bleaching event on the planet that, you know, we've seen reef bleaching events before. In the late 1990s, we saw 18% of, of, of coral reefs on the planet bleach. Well, now we estimate that we're going to hit 38% of all the reef on planet Earth will bleach. And reefs are just like rainforests. They, they're not things we should be messing with and and losing from our, our ecosystem, 25% of marine life is, it exists around the coral reefs. So these things are just, they're happening. You know, if you live in, in Vermont, you had a horrible sugar season, and you know that maple syrup is not going to be coming from Vermont for much longer. It's already moved to New Hampshire, and, and it's a Canadian crop because maple syrup is just, you know, maple trees, sugar maple trees are, are one in northern, a more northern climb. Mm. So, you know, we can go over the lists of things and at this point, I don't, I, I don't you know, the, it's hard to find people who don't kind of acknowledge those. Right. The, the challenge, I think, is that we just had an, you know, an active deception campaign going on. And you know, there's some new research um, or investigative reporting about what Exxon knew when. But you know, as, late, as, as, as early as the late 70s and early 80s, Exxon was doing cutting-edge research on climate change and had come to the conclusion that their, their – um, their pollution was causing it and it would get bad and worse. And at the same time, they were and have been funding climate deniers and climate science, you know, anti-climate science to try to prove, uh, uh, to prove something else. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I think that'll be seen, you know, 
we'll look at that as a crime against humanity. How you know one corporation, you know one very very wealthy corporation, really destroyed a scientific consensus or tried to, and delayed action for twenty years. Wow. Well, and you know that's an interesting transition because as I mentioned, I want to talk about Yertle and. Given we all, we've learned now about your your background, your passions and sustainability, the nonprofit, you know, Sierra Club, um, to go into a for profit as a startup working in, you know, or launching in Silicon Valley and all that, it has this connotation of wealth, right? Of let's raise all this money, let's create something, especially in the tech world, let's try to uh, IPO, make a ton of money. You know, as we talk about Exxon, a wealthy corporation, that's obviously primary goal is uh, the bottom line. It, it It's almost interesting. How do you feel you can merge for-profit entity with your passions in obviously bettering the social good? Well, I think I think um, companies have a huge role to play here. And, you know, it's this the business format is, um, you know, or the, the entity format, I think it's just another tool to be hacking and playing with. Um, so we're set up as a California benefit corporation, which is a specific you know, part of California law, which for us says that our mission is our top goal is even higher than, than, um, than our, our profit motive, which obviously if we, if we are not profitable, we will not exist. Um, but, uh, the concern in, with a lot of startups was that, you know, that essentially there would be, you'd be facing some sort of liquidity event. Um, and your investors would force you to sell for the highest dollar as opposed to doing the best thing for the mission. And our mission is to reduce the number of new things we all have to buy by 25%. Um, so it, that gives us kind of a structural guarantee as much as we can have that we won't be forced into doing it. The, the question would, of course, be is that can we build a successful enterprise? Because successful, a successful enterprise will actually be able to push back on whatever investor or anyone else asks you. I mean, it turns out we've been able to pull out really mission-aligned investors who've invested in us, and they we don't ever they don't ever say do less for the environment or wow. you know they they don't say that. Um, but our challenge, of course, and this is this is the challenge of being in a venture capital-backed company is that it has to grow. And if you are queasy about growth, yeah. um, which a lot of us are, um, that's that's a hard that's a hard challenge. But the people who are investing in us um, and us as well, we're betting on becoming something very large because that's the only way that the that's the only way that the economics pay off. It's interesting. So it's it is this alignment almost, right? It's like the investors want you to grow, but then you personally want it to grow because obviously the more it grows, the more impact you'll have. Where I feel like oftentimes, especially when you are looking in the tech space specifically, and with all of the just iterations that are happening and and not that Yertle is that I, I really enjoy what I know of it and I want to talk about that but you know you also have the 19th Snapchat and you know people just trying to make a buck and the investors are just grow to as many users as possible and let's sell where your model is look we can align both good and you know uh, wealth or investment or return on investment yeah I mean so the the idea behind Yertle is that that we have trillions of dollars of usable goods stuck in our closets and garages. And if we just got those moving between people, we wouldn't only save people lots and lots of money and require them to work less to earn that money. Um, but we'd also do something great for the climate. We would not have to produce all those items when you need one. If you need a pair of shin guards for your son's soccer practice, well, chances are one of your neighbors has one that's in their garage right now. Um, 
if you need a special jacket for a ski trip, there's chances are that a neighbor or a friend or someone on Yertle has that jacket and you don't need to go get a new one, which means you can get it faster, you can get it for a lot less money. And that whole thing didn't need to get produced and shipped and transported and packaged and resent and all the things that, that our modern supply chains produce. So that, yeah, starting with an idea that obviously has a core environmental benefit helps, right? If I was actually just trying to do a link clicking application and set that up as a California benefit corporation, it would be hard. You know, you'd have to sort of, that's where you get sort of the 10%. We'll give, we'll do something not great in our core business, but we'll give 10% of our profits to good things. Um, and you sort of see businesses that do that. Mm-hmm. But what I kind of believe is that a truly sustainable business is 100% for its mission, that everything it does resupports that mission. And that mission has to be bigger than just making the owners of the, of the business rich. It has to be about something broader than that. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a solution that can help you and your team do your best work. Share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users, so everyone in your company can use it. And it works on mobile so you can access your files whenever you need them. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it out for free at igloosoftware.com slash smart people. That's igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And now back to the show. I mean, I love that belief. Do you feel like that belief is shared amongst other uh, owners, CEOs, founders, especially in Silicon Valley? Um, <laughs> I'm pausing. I'm pausing. <laughs> So I, I'm I'm recruiting. <laughs> so, so hopefully, people, people listening to this will become those people. You no, know, it's not. I would say it's not the majority of you know. The, the, we're in the midst of a gold rush, um, but um, uh, and that's always a very discomforting experience. So people who you know a few years ago might have gone to Wall Street or coming out to San Francisco to start their tech businesses. And if you're you know if you're if you were heading toward banking or consulting and you were just trying to maximize your your wealth. Um, you're not necessarily looking for a way to benefit society while you're doing that. What I am trying to get across to people who are activists, who you know would be working for a nonprofit, um, is that there's an extraordinary tool set here and extraordinary opportunity. It's easier to raise money um, in this way than raising it for a nonprofit. It just is. Um, so why not take advantage of that and build something that satisfies two requirements? that, yes, builds a profitable enterprise, but in the process actually gets that mission achieved. And, you know, there, there are, it's not, it's not no one. There are organizations and entities out there who are doing that. There's a nice um, company called Scoot that I like a lot, which is a, it's an electric um, uh, kind of Vespa rental company all around San Francisco where you can rent a Vespa and just take it for a short ride. It's alternative transportation. It's pollutionless. Um, and similarly, those the people there, I worked with some of them at the Sierra Club, are just trying to do the right thing and do it through tech. And it, so I, I think there's a, in the same way that we embraced lobbying or embraced grassroots organizing, I think we need to embrace technological innovation as a venue for activism. I absolutely love the way you just put that. And here's why. 
as, as the listeners know, I helped found a nonprofit and I currently work for it um, in a VP role. And really the founder, I, I just say help found, I'm not a co-founder, but the founder um, used to work with Elon Musk at SpaceX. Our mission is to increase the consumption of healthful and sustainable food. We, we all come from a business background, everyone kind of in the management arm, I guess, if you will. It is impossible to get the resources needed to grow quickly. I mean, and and we often talk like if we could go back to the beginning, would we have started this as a for-profit? And I don't know what the answer is, but I can say that it would have been easier to raise money. And I just for those out there, it might that might not be a that might not be a, a noticeable distinction, you know, especially in the world we live in now and the the ability to fundraise it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, I, I mean, there's it's a it. I, I wish more people would take the opportunity to try and fail at it too. I mean, it's just it's very it's it's small. I mean, your question was a good one. Like, so are there a lot of folks out there? And the answer is no. You know, there's some, and I love them. Um, but <laughs> but we need more people. You know, but I could throw a rock and hit someone starting a small nonprofit in San Francisco. I mean, it's it's it that is the way that people tend to do something. And search for foundation funding and individual donors and build. And that, those are all great. And I don't, I don't mean to discourage that. We, we need that. And there are particularly things that that is the right solution for. Um, you know, you know, uh, but there are other ideas. Um, and I think this is where we get to tech and communications and lifestyle um, uh, where you can do a lot through technology. And it's not just the fundraising. It's also the kind of the, the operating principles um, and, you know, not to be too reductive, but, you know, an agile development process and framework where you embrace failure, you're constantly experimenting, you are evaluating every link in the chain to see if it's working, you're checking back into uh, data constantly and sharing that data openly with your team. Those are values that don't particularly exist in in um in spades in the nonprofit world. Sure. And yet every tech startup uses a, something like Slack to, in, to communicate internally. Every stack tech startup uses something like Gecko board to share internal uh, data. Every tech startup has someone who uh, in a product manager role, who's embracing failure and encouraging people to do it. And, you know, when I go to nonprofits, failure is, people can't afford to fail. Um, <laughs> you just can't afford to do that because it's all at risk. Um, data is really hard to come by and actually people are, are tend to be very protective of it. Um, and you know, there, there's, there's not a lot of rapid iteration. There's a lot of planning for things that happen in six months, mm-hmm. um, and next big initiatives, but putting out something the next day, you know, changing and putting a build out the next day that that doesn't happen enough. And mm-hmm. again, I, I'm really painting with a very broad brush and, and oh, yeah. unfair, but it's just like it, there, those archetypes exist and all of us can recognize nonprofits like that. Um, and I, you know, some of the, the, the skills and, and tools that I see here on my team, I wish I had at the Sierra club. Um, I want more of that, uh, in that, in that zone. Yeah. I think the, the, yeah, of course, like you said, it's a broad brush, but I think the greater kind of idea to take away is that people tend to think if I want to change the world, it's a nonprofit. If I want to make money, it's a for-profit and you are bridging that gap as are some other companies. Um, and, 
and potentially in a way that's more scalable and beneficial. So um, I want to dive in more to Yertle because you, you covered it a little bit, but I know the business model still sounds um, a, a little vague. So tell us exactly, you know, how, uh, how do we use it? What is it? What's the benefit, et cetera? So you use Yertle to give away what you don't need and get what you do. Um, and you post items that are sitting in your closets, your garage, your trunk um, that you may have outgrown or you're no longer using. Um, and you assign a price in Yertle dollars, which are basically the same. They function fun- just like U.S. dollars. Um, so you say, okay, I'm going to post this set of coffee mugs for 20 euro dollars and someone says, oh, I need those, co- those coffee mugs and they buy them from you at 20 euro dollars. They send you a prepaid mailing label. You put it on a box and send it to them. Um, we, uh, and they've earned euro dollars in the same way that everyone else has just by posting items um, or by getting, you, when you join, you get, you get 25 to start. We moved about 50,000 items last month between people like that. Um, and you know, all of those items didn't need to get produced again. Um, they all saved people lots of money when they arrived and they didn't need to be packaged <laughs> again. Um, so there's a kind of a, a, a suite of benefits around, around that. What, what's extraordinary is just how much stuff we all have. Um, you know, self-storage didn't even exist as a business until the late sixties, early seventies. And, you know, it's over 2 billion square feet of America is held for self-storage now. It's grown by a thousand percent since that time. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And largely that stuff is never accessed again. Americans use uh, only about 20% of their things in their homes more than once a month. Most things just, just sit. Uh, and, you know, when you think about this sort of this work that we're all working in, these jobs we're working to earn more money to get more stuff, it's a little crazy. Uh, and we're just trying to provide a solution where you can get what you need and even better, you can get rid of those things that you don't and put them into people's hands who can really benefit from them. So what would prevent somebody from like telling their friend, Hey, I just put a used shoe on Yertle, buy it from me for a million Yertle dollars. So I can then buy a bunch of other stuff. Cause it, it, there isn't a dollar assigned, right? Like do you actually buy Yertle dollars? Yeah, I mean you can, although we don't we, we don't we don't encourage you to do it. We encourage you to earn them by posting items because it's easier to do. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, I mean the challenges of this, that person would need to have eight thousand euro dollars. Like gotcha. they're not created out of nothing. They're they're they are created out of, of activity. And what most people find is that they can very quickly turn whatever they have. I mean, I just got rid of two belts that I had for a long time. Um and they felt great. I got a really nice thank you letter from them. I got ten euro dollars for each of them. Um, and I'm looking for an alarm clock for my son now because hmm. um, he needs an alarm clock. Um, so it's you know it, it's it's getting the things that I need. Um, the alarm clock that I'm going to get is going to be much more interesting than the ones I could buy on Amazon right now. Um, and uh, um, I'm going to save money in the process. So it, it it's you know, very old fashioned, right? I mean, sure. been giving things back and forth forever, but the the informal economy has been suffering. Um, in comparison to the to the you know the the get it now type of economy that we've seen form in the last decade or so, mm-hmm. uh, and where people used to rely on church swap sales and friends and neighbors and sisters, um, they're more and more relying on the convenience of mass manufactured goods and credit to get those things. And I mean, the obvious 
differentiator between, say, Yertle and Craigslist is there's no actual money that changes hands. What implication does that have on the process in general? Why does, you know, because money essentially back when it started was to prohibit, or I guess not prohibit, but to make it easier to barter, yeah. if you will, right? That's so right. That's, right. That, that's just one method. So now, I mean, Yertle dollars could be considered just another form of money. So how, how does that differentiate? Well, I mean, I think you put your finger on it. It 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 intermediates exchange and it time shifts it. It allows you to say, okay, I'm going to give away these bar- these belts, but I don't actually know the person who has the alarm clock that I want, which would be an old-fashioned. Ah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can give away these belts, earn the euro dollars, and then wait till this till the alarm clock that I want comes up. Um, you know, when we launched Yertle, we didn't have a currency on it, even though you know we were encouraged to, and we thought about it a lot because we were afraid that it would create a weird social dynamic um, to basically get things from friends with currency. Um, what we found was that actually the currency was what people needed to exchange things with friends and strangers. That people felt much more comfortable when there was a tangible value assigned to something to actually go and get it. So when we had no prices on anything, things just kind of sat there because people would be like, oh, I don't want to get that belt because maybe someone else needs it more. Or if I get that belt from Adam, <laughs> I'm going to owe him something. I don't want to owe him anything. Um, so the belt would just sit. And then when I said, no, the belt was 10 euro dollars, again, kind of a made-up currency, people thought, oh, okay, that seems like a reasonable price and I'm going to get it and I need it. And you know, it's a fair exchange. So the currency really lubricated the marketplace for us and got, and got it moving much, much more quickly. You know, I'm just going to throw this out there as a use case. Because so, for example, I recently moved and I had a um, a patio set mm-hmm. and I didn't want it. It was a little old. It, it still functioned, but it's a new house. And I don't know. We don't even have a deck. So I needed to get rid of it. And I hate throwing stuff out. So I put it on Craigslist, but I put it f- out for free because, mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah, I probably could have got, I don't know, 10, 15 bucks. But that just wasn't the point. And somebody came and picked it up. And they were so appreciative. It was almost like they were shocked. Like, why are you giving this to me? And just that feeling was better than, honestly, if I sold it for $100. Because that didn't matter to me. Now, in the case of Yertle, I think, okay, I'll put it on there because there are things I need. And I and by no means have a lot of money. Um, so I kind of like that it's you can almost still feel a sense of social good because you're limiting the the footprint that we all have. But you also get you can get things in return and, and there are things I need and I don't need to buy new ones. I really, yeah. I like that whole, the whole concept. It, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. I mean, the, um, the giving, it seems very important. I mean, we, we have a mix of people, right? So, um, you know, what we're most proud of is that we have a, just a very broad swath of, you know, what we would call value shoppers, people who clip coupons and are trying to save money and make their budgets, um, work to the end of the month, you know, and, it's it, this is pretty endemic, you know. I think it, it more than half of Americans at this point are one four hundred dollar bill away from basically financial insolvency, having to choose a really hard choice like not paying for their medicine or their uh, or their rent for the for the month. So, um, just finding a tactic to help people save money is enough, if that makes sense, to to actually reach a sense of okay, we're doing something good, but. What sort of goes past it is that that feeling of putting something that you had into someone else's hands for use is such a strong motivator. It just it just it just what we all kind of expect and should want to have happen. 
And that's sort of been the most magical for us. There's really deep thank you notes. People tend to decorate their packages and um, really enjoy giving things away. They enjoy the experience of feeling generous and being generous. Can you give books away on there? Yeah, yeah. Books. I have so many books. <laughs> I mean, we interview authors like book. I mean, books upon <laughs> books. I can't even give them away to our listeners fast enough. It's pretty funny. funny. Yeah, <laughs> books, books work really well. We, you know, our, our sweet spot is items less than ten pounds, and mm-hmm. most things are are shipped between people. Um, and what we're in the process of doing now is, as we get denser, building kind of more local density. So you know, a thing like a patio set, we could move more efficiently. Right. Yeah. What What are um, any other plans? I know we got to go here in a second, but any any growth strategies or anything we should be on the lookout from Yertle? Well, we're, you know, what we're doing now is working much more closely with product manufacturers to begin to bring their, uh, kind of their supply chains into, into, um, into this new way of working. Patagonia, who's an investor in Yertle and strong supporter is launching with us this effort to, if you post something from Patagonia over the holiday on Yertle, you actually get a discount on something new from Patagonia. Oh, wow. Um, which is a great way of encouraging for them. They just, they just know that the best thing that they can do is get the Patagonia gear out of people's closets and on people's backs. Uh, that's the best thing they can do for sustainability. So that's one way we're trying to, to work with them. Well, that's incredible. Adam, thanks so much for being on. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of tell people what action can they take? What I mean, how do they use Yertle? Where do they find it? You know, what's the sign up? Where do they learn more? All that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, Yertle is still at the beginning of its story and we'd love everyone to join us. Um, the best thing to do is to look at something in your closet and take a quick photo of it and put it up on Yertle. You'll be shocked at how fast it goes to someone who really wants it and needs it. So think about a piece of clothing that you might have that you've outgrown or think about something small that's in your kitchen that you want to, you want to give away and just try it. Try one, try posting one thing, go to the app store, either Android or Apple and it's www.yerdle.com. Yertle. Well, I have about three alarm clocks sitting somewhere that I think I'm going to dig up because there's people like you out there and I'm happy to give them away. (laughs) My son son will thank you. Adam, thank you again so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Have a great day. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Adam Warbach. You can find his books on Amazon and the app Yertle on the iOS app store or Android app store. I actually had a chance to jump on Yertle and play around a little bit with it. And I'm going to start posting a lot of the stuff that's just sitting around my office and my house. As I'm sitting here recording this podcast, I can see at least five or six things that I probably haven't touched in, I don't know, four or five months. And honestly, they could go to a good home. As always, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this episode of Smart People Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode before this, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. We truly do appreciate that each and every time we see feedback for the show. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can send us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We've received a bunch of really cool emails this week and I've got the chance to connect with a bunch of listeners and have really enjoyed it. So if you've sent an email recently telling a story or just wanting to converse with Chris or I, thank you so, so much. I really, really do appreciate that. We've got some great episodes coming up, so make sure you stay tuned to all things about the show over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Keep telling friends and family that does help the show grow, and we really do appreciate that. And we will see you all next week.